Good evening. My name is Scott, and I am an alcoholic. And, uh, and I'll be grateful to be here as soon as these butterflies calm down. Boy, this is a big deal for me, and I'm honored to be here. Uh, I'd like to thank Bart and Gloria for the, the privilege of residing in their home. And, uh, and everyone on the committee, and everyone had anything at all to do with my being here, I'm grateful. This is, uh, I owe a debt I can't repay, and that's what I'm here to talk about. Um, I'd like to open my talks with a quote from Lois Wilson, who was, as you know, co-founder of Al-Anon. She was asked one time what she did in the moment of silence, because a lot of places they open with a moment of silence and then the serenity prayer, which I know she all do the prayer first. But um, someone asked her what she did in that moment of silence, and she said, I invite God to the meeting. That was powerful for me. And um, it's not that I don't believe God's here. I do believe that. But I know that something special happens for me when I stop and honor that presence. I also want to say congratulations to whomever was involved in getting all these people with less than a year to this conference. Congratulations. Somebody's doing some great work here. Yeah. And to those of you who are new, welcome. You, It is you that I came to talk to because I know how you feel because I was that way too. And uh, But anyway, if um, I, I'm, I'm going to take a moment here shortly and ask for a moment of silence and ask you all if you would to... Uh, Honor the presence of deity or to invite your God to join us and bless us with open hearts. And uh, just in case there's someone here who doesn't have a God or you've got one you're afraid of or something that's simply not working, I'd like to invite you to borrow mine for this time we're going to be together tonight. I recommend him very highly. Um, He's uh, been keeping me sober for what I think of as a pretty good period of time. I stood up in the 19-year thing. And uh, he also has a great sense of humor. If you don't think so, look around the room. <laughs> I think we're pretty funny, don't you? Uh, and one of the other things I do in the moment of silence when I ask God to help me not to judge the speaker. Now, you don't have to do that. But uh, that, uh, that sure has helped me a lot. And uh, anyway, we'll file it under whatever it's worth. So uh, if you would, let's take a couple of moments and, and, and ask God to join us and bless us with open hearts. I'll just meet you back here. Amen. Thank you. I was asked to tell my story. Uh, I found the directions here on page 29 in the text where it says, Each individual in the personal story describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. Well, I didn't start my life that way. I began my life a victim of the delusion that I could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only I managed well. Recognize that? Page 61. What it says is I was so crazy that I thought if I could get what I wanted it would make me happy. I'm a poor observer. I mean, didn't you? I got what I wanted hundreds of thousands of times. And I'm not happy. Right? That happened to you? I'll give you two examples. Who, when you were a child... By the way, I didn't drive up here from Nashville to talk to you. I come to talk with you. Okay, I'm counting on you. We do this together. Who, when you were a child, wanted a bicycle? You know, if you could get a bicycle, you'd be happy and you got the bike. Where are you? Thank you. Thank you. Are you happy, by the way? Really? Well, let's try another one. Who, which of you guys wanted her and girls wanted him? I'm sure if you got him, you'd be happy and you got him. Do I have to ask? Okay. So this thing on page 61 kind of powerful for me. Uh, I think one of the great concepts in the book, the, this one just knocks me down, page 42, it says, it meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. Does that mean some of what I know for sure ain't so? I think that's what that means. And part of my problem was I had happiness and pleasure confused. And I really had them badly confused. For me, pleasure is on the physical plane is of a limited duration. And there's something out there that I can get that will bring it. Happiness 
is on the inside. And it's a side effect of having a healthy relationship with all of you and with God. And that's at least in part what the steps were about. But I had them confused, and so I was on this constant quest for what would make me happy. And uh, what I really wanted was more. And I'm an achiever, so I would get more. But after I had it for a while, it wasn't more anymore. It was just some, and what I had wanted was more. So I'd get out there and hustle, and I'd get more. But pretty soon, that was only some. And then there's no end to that. Um, I didn't start drinking until I was 18 years old, and I have a very good reason for that. It's because I didn't know what it would do. I needed a, a double shot of Jack Daniels the morning I went to kindergarten the first day, didn't you? Huh? Would that have helped that day for you? Well, it wouldn't me. I got a friend from Australia who says he was born two beers short of normal. <laughs> and I think that's my story. But uh, anyway, I, I went off to college. It was at that time a men's school in Tennessee called Suwanee. It's now co-ed. And um, got out with fraternity boys. And I wanted to be a fraternity boy, something terrible. And they started drinking beer, so I started drinking beer. And somewhere between the first sip of that first beer and the bottom of the second one, I got the magic. And the alcoholics in this room all know what I'm talking about. And uh, let's try this one. I was suddenly taller. Who got taller? Come on, where are you? Taller? Just a few tallers? Really? How about better looking? Who got better looking? All right. Okay. Yeah, my pimples fell right off. I was. Uh, I looked around, didn't see them on the table, so I figured nobody knew. I'm still surprised they don't use that on the TV as I knew we'd see it on the Super Bowl this year. You know, Bud Light cures acne. I just knew that was going to be one of them. Because it knocked mine out. And... Uh, yeah, uh, expert on many subjects. Get smart when you're drinking? Where are you? Who got smart? Okay, yeah. Yeah, those the Alanons laughing. They didn't think we got that smart. Yeah, you're busted, fella. Uh, <laughs> and uh, how about this one? Fantastic dancer. Anybody get the double on the dancer? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But But I want you to know... The biggest thing it did for me is it made me feel like I was as good as everybody else, and I'd never had that experience before. I don't know how it happened, but when I was very small, I became convinced that I'm not as good as everybody else. There are things wrong with me that can't be repaired. And if you all ever find out who I really am, you won't want me around. And it's the only thing I knew for sure. And I became an actor as a small boy, and my act was I pretended to be whoever I thought the people immediately in front of me wanted me to be, which makes me a different guy to everybody. And I've been at, by the time I get here, I've been acting so long, I don't have the faintest notion who I really am. I have not a guess. The only thing I know about me is I'm defective, and if you ever find out who I am, you, you won't hang out with me. That's all I know. And that, uh, that second beer bottomed out. And we went from, if you all find out who I am, you'll run me off. We went from that to, <laughs> you all are pretty lucky I'm here. <laughs> and that is an entire psychic change. Dr. Silkworth says that's what I have to have to get over alcoholism, and it's because that's what it did for me. That's what it did for me. It gave me an entire psychic change, and I needed one very, very badly. Um, sort of zip on here. I, um, I zipped through a four-year college and five years and two summer schools. Anybody? Any? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. And um, the United States Air Force was using the mirror test in the 1960s. If you're not familiar with it, they put a small mirror under your nose. If you can fog it, they'll take you. And um, they took me and uh, gave me a commission, sent me to, uh, to Air Force pilot training in Valdosta, Georgia, where I speak the language. And um, we flew the uh, Cessna 172, a little single-engine prop plane, for six weeks. We moved to the T-37, which is a twin-engine jet. Sit side by side. It's got a bubble canopy. It's fully acrobatic. 
fantastic little airplane at about 400 miles an hour tops. We flew that for four and a half months and moved into the T-38, which you're all familiar with. Uh, and many of you may be here with, with Wright Pat and all, but uh, you all actually are because you saw the movie Top Gun. I bet everybody saw that. In the, in the beginning and the end of that movie, they're having the dogfight with the MiGs. Well, the Russian government didn't loan Hollywood any MiGs, all right? Let me start there. That black airplane's the Air Force's advanced jet trainer, the T-38. When that aircraft came into the inventory, it took the climb record away from the F-104. This is a high-performance aircraft, which means it has after-burning jet engines. It will fly faster than the speed of sound. Uh, it is stressed for seven and a half positive Gs and about four negative. I'm going to try to say what that means in a couple of minutes. Uh, this aircraft, and I've done this on a number of occasions, would go from brake release to 40,000 feet in three and a half minutes flat. Yeah, they don't have that right at the fair. And uh, <laughs> they got that one. Uh, this thing has a roll rate. I've been saying for a long time it had a roll rate of 420 degrees a second, and it has a roll rate of 720 degrees a second, which is twice around every second. You use a max deflection on the stick, she'll roll at 720 a second. Your eyeballs won't track that if you're stober. I mean, you just can't. It's a blur. A loop in this aircraft, which a loop is defined as a 360-degree turn to the vertical plane pulling positive Gs. That's one of these guys. At 10,000 feet, you enter at 500 knots, which is 550 miles an hour, close enough. And you pull up at 5 Gs. Now, I'll tell you what that means. You're pulling 1 G, now it's force of gravity. At 5 Gs, at 1 G, a 200-pound man weighs 200 pounds. At 5 Gs, a 200-pound man weighs 1,000 pounds. That is precisely what that means. That includes everything in your body, all of your hair, and your upper eyelids. And you will work at 5 Gs to keep them open, trust me. All right, 10,000 feet, 500 knots, 5 Gs. Wings level inverted at 20,000 feet. We lose, lose 8,000 feet coming down the backside of that maneuver. Total elapsed time under 25 seconds. And I'll tell you all of that for two reasons. The first one, of course, is to impress you. <laughs> Anybody? Okay, thank you. I, I got mine up. Uh, and the second one is because it tells the story of my alcoholism so well. Because I come down from a day of flying that plane, and I head for the officer's club to socialize with the other pilots in my squadron. No plans to get drunk. I got a flight tomorrow morning at 7.30. Nobody with a brain to get drunk before that, right? There's virtually no chance now. I used to get drunk on purpose a lot. I mean, that's the mission. I'm going, it's Arbor Day, man. We got to celebrate. I am going out and get drunk tonight. If that's not why you're going, don't come with me. But I also used to just kind of take drunk. Did you ever get drunk by mistake? Anybody get drunk by mistake? They really mean to. Might have caught off a doorknob or something. Just, boom, there it was. That used to happen to me some. Um, Y'all have been pretty active. Let's try this. Are you willing to do audience participation with me? Yeah. Let's try that again. Are you willing to do audience yeah. Yeah. Ah, Thank you very much. When a point just fell in the blanks, please, you know the answers, all right? Not going to get drunk tonight. Absolutely not going to get drunk. I want to stop by the club and have one beer, no more than two. Right. <laughs> I noticed some of you Alanons didn't play. I don't want to leave you out here. I want you to know that you know the answers to these questions. This is what you heard on the phone. <laughs> and you believed it again. That's why you have to come to Al-Anon. <laughs> the ones that ran screaming from guys like me don't have to come to your thing. <laughs> is that right? You know that's right. All right. Okay. So, all right. So you have one beer, no more than... should be home by 6.30, no later than... But what happens is somewhere between the first sip of the first beer and the bottom of the second one, I get this phenomenon of craving Dr. Silkworth talks about, and I don't get home by 7. 
I'll leave the officers club at exactly one o'clock in the morning because they. <laughs> this is one of the biggest groups of pilots I've ever talked to. I guess. <laughs> I uh, I drive home with a hand over one eye, drunk. Who, who knows why? Come on, all right. Ask one of them later if you don't know. And. Uh, my first wife just tears me apart when I get home. There's actually quite a bit of information in that sentence if you listen to it very closely. And um, I, go, I, go into the, uh, I go into the bathroom for what a friend of mine refers to as his after-drinking chores. And I really hate to do this after such a fine meal, but I think it's important because we've got new folks here who may, may think they're the only ones. And um, uh, let me see if I could please the hands of the pukers. Come on. Where are you? All right, come on. Is that all? Really? Okay. All right, thank you. How about nose pukers? Ever come out your nose? Hey, nose pukers? Yeah. Let me tell you something about the nose pukers. Some of the rest of you quit forever. The nose pukers quit every time, right? Uh, who quit forever? All right. Who quit forever? Solomon on the Bible in front of witnesses more than once. These are my people. These are my people. Okay. All right. Let's try another. Who peed in the closet? I'm so embarrassed for you. I never did that. Oh, that's awful. Oh. Oh, don't be admitted. Did your sponsor know you were talking about that in public? I would not. Oh, that's awful, guys. I never did that. Um, my first wife is still angry about that coffee table that used to be in the living room. I will admit that. Um... Let me tell you something. I have the high honor and privilege of carrying meetings into jails and prisons on a regular basis. Anybody else here doing that? Anybody here doing corrections? Okay. I'd like to talk to you afterward. i got some stuff for you. We're doing some weekends in the jail where eight of us take 50 inmates through the work, and i got an outline if you'd like to have it. It's really been something. And the program director at this jail can't wait to talk to your wardens or whoever. It's changing lives. A couple of Sundays ago at my home group, I saw five men sitting there in my home group who had been through the 12 steps on one of these weekend things, and they've got sponsors and the lights coming on their eyes. There's also a woman sitting there. Our girls have got a one-day format they're using. Dynamite stuff. But uh, anyway, I did that little gag in the jail last year for the first time. 25 guys sitting there who peed in the closet. One hand goes up. And I did it to him like I did it to you. And when the crowd finally calmed down, he said, Hey, man, no big deal. Wasn't my closet. <laughs> perspective thing. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I would pray what I call, it's not in the literature, okay, this is, I just call it the pre-AA prayer. All right, so it's not in the literature as such, but uh, we'll do it together. I'll do the first line, you do the second. You ready? God, get me out of this. <laughs> you let that out? That's alcoholic for amen. Isn't it? I brush my teeth and go to bed. It's got to be 2.30 in the morning by now. Something like that. I get up at 6 in that wonderland between drunk and hungover. I really miss that a lot, don't you? And, uh, you know, if Mr. Gillette had not invented the safety razor, probably somebody else would be talking to you. I would have died trying to say. And uh, I clean up and head out for the base about 7.30 in the morning. I'm in that airplane I was telling you about. And I'm dying. <laughs> I am dying. I've got, I call it the 4-6 hangover. It's the one where the butcher knife goes in here, sticks out the back. Remember that one? That was surprised my helmet went on over it. And um, 
Oh, man, I'm dying. i got a tremor in my hands. My eyelids are made out of sandpaper. My throat and nasal passages are raw from being sick the night before. I'm sweating booze out of every pore. I've selected 100% on the oxygen lever. It will not cure a hangover. Trust me, I've talked to many of our pilots. Nobody's ever had a hangover cured by oxygen. doesn't happen. And I'm dying in that plane. Dying. And we're in a two-ship formation today, by the way. The Thunderbirds flew this plane for seven years, and the reason is because it could really do the acrobatic strain. Just after liftoff, I've tucked under the leader's tail, and his afterburner's right here. See where I'm pointing at? Right there. I'm sitting here in my cockpit. He's right there, and we're pulling 5Gs going over the top. And I'm dying. For those who don't recognize it, what I've just described is willpower. And it is no defense against this disease. Alcoholics, I think, have phenomenal willpower. But it's no defense against this disease. I'm convinced it's the reason that the, uh, the earth people don't become alcoholics is they simply don't have the willpower for it. Um, no offense, but uh, I mean, the guy goes out on prom night. He drinks a pint of Jack Daniels. He pukes on his date's dress. He wrecks his truck. He wakes up in the drunk tank. He says, I'm never doing that again. He never does. Obvious lack of willpower. I know you can see that. Anyway, I'm dying in this plane. The only thing that keeps me going is the sure and certain knowledge that I'll never feel this way in a plane again. Because, you know, last night I quit forever in a minute with all my heart. Didn't you? Didn't you every time you quit forever mean it with all your heart? I did. A minute every time. And by 5.30 that afternoon, I'm not well, but I'm pretty close. You know, in my early 20s, my body's resilient. And I'll tell you one thing I know for sure is I'm not getting drunk tonight. Now, I mean, I've got an 8.15 launch tomorrow morning. There's no chance I'm going to get drunk, but I do want to socialize with the other pilots of my squadron. So I think I'll drop by the club and have one beer, no more than... I should be home by 6.30, no later than... But I leave the club at exactly one because they... I drive home drunk, I listen to her, I puke my guts out, God get me out of this. Very good. Over and over again. Over and over again. And I'm sitting in that airplane the next morning dying when we light the afterburners. Dying thinking that it's never going to happen again. I was powerless over alcohol, and I was ignorant of the fact that I was powerless over alcohol. Tough combination. I have a certificate on my wall at home that says I'm a distinguished graduate from Air Force pilot training. I was top 10% of the class. I think I was second. I just had the gift. You know, some guys can hit a golf ball 300 yards. I can drive a plane. It's just that way. I drew an assignment flying a C-141, which is a four-engine jet transport, which is to say I've been drunk on five continents and don't have a guess how many islands. And... Um, a year later, I was sent to Vietnam on a gunship. I flew Spooky in the Delta, uh, if you knew her. Puffed the Magic Dragon, if you didn't. Um, flew that for a few months. They phased it out. I got to. I was flying an intelligence mission. Uh, uh, somebody reminded me of this earlier. I was drunk at the uh, Phuket Officers Club uh, drinking tequila. Anybody drinking tequila? Anybody ever drinking tequila? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. I, I know I shouldn't. Because for me, tequila is traveling juice. I start drinking tequila, I need to be someplace else. <laughs> I need to be there right now. And uh, I woke up someplace else. You ever wake up someplace else? Yeah, I woke up someplace else. And um, collected my things, and I'm, I'm now about 6 o'clock or 6.30 in the morning, walking a couple of miles across this air base in a flight suit, sunglasses, hat, flight boots. I'm a captain by this time. I passed about 20 different people. One or two at a time. They all saluted, but they had the funniest expressions on their faces. And I thought, how can all these enlisted guys know I was a jerk in the officer's club last night already? I don't get this. And I got home, and I walked into my trailer, walked into the bathroom, looked in the mirror, and I'm missing the lens out of one side of my sunglasses, baby. And I... (laughs) 
It wasn't too long after that that the colonel came to me one day and he said, Captain Lee, you have such a warm rapport with the enlisted men, and I'm really concerned about a couple of these sergeants and their drinking. Would you counsel them for me? I said, yes, sir, I'd be glad to. <laughs> and with a pretty severe hangover one morning, I talked to three sergeants about their drinking. No kidding. I was, uh, I was eventually flying a mission that was classified top secret and some stuff, and uh, at 4 o'clock one morning, I was so drunk that... Uh, I was so drunk, my co-pilot navigator didn't take me into base operations to file a flight plan. They didn't want them to see me in there. So I went out to the airplane and got in the front seat, left row, uh, left side, you know, front row. I'm going to drive, I always do. And They get out to the plane and can't talk me out of the seat. One of their problems is political. See, I'm the commanding officer of everybody in sight. <laughs> and uh, finally, my co-pilot gets me to agree that if, I, if he ever says he's got it, that I'll let go. And so we crank him up and taxi out. And uh, he's running the checklist, setting the flaps and checking the gauges, and I'm taxiing this plane. Get to the end of the taxi out. I told you booze made me smart. I can remember thinking how brilliant I was. I had opened my side window just in case I was sick. I could be sick out of the window. I can remember thinking how smart I was. I'm about to ride over a very interesting place with a very drunk pilot. Does that strike you as highly intelligent? I didn't get that piece at that time. I get it now. I didn't get it then. And so my co-pilot's looking inside the cockpit. I'm taxiing this thing. I get to the end of the taxiway, and I'm trying to be very smooth on the controls. Don't make myself sick. I applied the brakes so smoothly that I don't stop this thing. And I taxied that beast right off into the grass off the end of the taxiway. Possibly some of you have had that experience with other types of vehicles. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thought so. And, um, you know, if there had been a stump there or a drainage ditch or a rock or something, somebody else is here tonight, and I'm serving life. And that's one of the reasons I love to take the meetings into the jail. Someone asked Miss Linda, my wife, um, what she thought about all the time I spent in the jails. And she said, I love it because I love who he is when he comes out of there. Because I come out a foot off the ground with tears running down my face most of the time. And it doesn't have to do with the door slam and they're stuck there and I go home to her. It has to do with going a little bit out of my way that maybe, maybe somebody gets this thing. Had an experience a few years ago sitting in a little restaurant in Nashville. And this fellow walks up to my table and he says, you don't know me, do you? And I said, man, if I should, I apologize. I don't know you. He says, you came into a person I was in and you talked a couple of years ago. I heard you and I believed you. I'm doing the things you said and they're never going to arrest me again in my life. I want to thank you for my freedom. And I'm overpaid for the rest of my life. Um, I'll tell you this. If you're suffering from depression, get with somebody that had their hand up. Take a couple of meetings into the jail. It'll break a depression fast. And uh, unlike some of what's being prescribed for us, it won't hurt your sobriety. Forgive my soapbox, but I sure have seen us lose a lot of people that way. Anyway, you, you may be idly curious as to what happened to the drunk off the end of the taxiway. Um, what happened is we flew the mission. And uh, if you're wondering how in the world you could fly that drunk, I'm going to tell you. It's what you do if you have to fly really drunk is you keep the airplane up in the sky part. Um, <laughs> you don't get close to the edges of the sky, you know, like where there's water and rocks and stuff. Keep it kind of up in the middle of the sky part. Because um, there, there isn't much up there, you know. Um, and it's a really big sky. So chances are pretty good if you just keep it up in the sky part, you probably won't do anything. And that's, it worked for me. I, uh, I resigned my commission after five years. I was an instructor pilot on the airplane I had wanted to fly all my life. And I walked away. And I had to. Alcoholism didn't take away my dreams. It took away any chance I had of coming true. That's what it took away. I got a job as a sales rep, and in the summer of 1984, my business partner figured out what was wrong with me, and he said, you go to treatment or we're done. And I couldn't dial my own home phone number in three tries. And I said, okay. And June 28, 1984, which is my sobriety date, and it's also, by the way, my belly button birthday, 
and still is my belly button birthday. I wanted to uh, mention that was the only thing I didn't have to change. If you're new here and you're wondering what you have to change, that was my status. And um, I didn't sleep the first four nights I was there, and I'm told that's real common, people in there on the mixture I was on. And uh, I'm lying there the fourth night knowing I'm not going to sleep one more time. And this happened to me. I didn't do it, but a review of my life happened. Uh, not like a near-death experience where it was instantaneous, but over the course of a pretty good period of time, I saw my life. And I had always given myself credit for my intentions. I'm probably the best intended person you've ever run across. Um, I used to be an amateur magician. I did close-up. And my intention was that one of these days I was going to get a clown suit. And when I was on the road, instead of running the saloons, I was going to put on the clown suit and take my kid into a children's hospital to do a show. I think everybody here will admit that only a truly spectacular individual would do something like that. <laughs> and one of these days, I was going to do that. And they tell me here that the our third step talks about a decision. The difference between intention and a decision is that an intention is followed by more intentions. Decisions followed by action. That's the difference. And this night, when this review happened, the intentions were gone. And boy, it wasn't a pretty story. I got to where I began to think about the single worst thing I'd ever done. I got one. Stands alone. I'd always been able to stop it before. You know, three fast scotches will knock that out. Six-pack will turn it off. I'm laying in a bed in a treatment center. I can't even leave the room. I got no way to stop it. And I reached what I call bottom. We use the term. I don't see its definition in my literature. So this is my experience with bottom. Bottom was not on the physical plane. I'd puked blood a couple of times. I've been in lots of kinds of trouble. I know guys serving long prison sentences and aren't at bottom. Bottom, for me, was in here. Bottom was of the spirit. Where I hated myself at a level was so repulsed by the things I'd done that I would pay any price and do anything not to be that man. That, for me, was bottom. And at that point, this part of me screamed to a God that I don't think I believed in. It screamed out real loud from in here, God, forgive me. And I received the forgiveness in that moment. I'm going to try to tell you what it was like. I land on my back on this bed. With my eyes still closed, suddenly I can see the entire room. There's this magnificent light just shining on me in my bed. Physically, it felt like when you've had x-rays of your teeth taken, you get through, they got that lead thing, that's, that blanket that's laying on you, they picked that up. That's what it felt like, something very heavy that I'd been unaware of until that moment was laying on me. And it flew up off of me, at a very just zipped right off of me. Physically, I felt so light, I thought I was coming off the bed, just going to float right up. I think I took the first three steps in that moment. I suddenly knew not only was there a God, but that God had the power to forgive me, and I was forgiven. And that's what happened to me in that moment. And I lay there in that presence for a while. I've talked to several others who've had similar experiences, and they agree with what I'm about to say. And that's what we call time does not exist in that presence. Now, I don't know whether I lay there for two-tenths of a second or three hours. I do not know. I know I slept some because I woke up the next morning. And I woke up wanting to be one of his guys. And that was my first cornerstone. This is, uh, this is Bill's story. On page 12, beginning at the bottom, but soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself. I'm not sure what Bill was saying, but I, but what that says to me in my story is that wouldn't have kept me sober to today. That was merely a cornerstone for me. I had to have the rest of it. If that would have kept me sober to today, I would not be here in front of you. I would have just gotten that and gone on. So that wasn't the deal. Anyway, I, I, I started doing what they asked me to do. And uh, a few weeks later, I walked into my counselor's office. I'd like to tell you he was a member of Al-Anon. I'd like to salute you. I have tremendous respect for the fellowship of Al-Anon. I'm really thrilled to see A and Al-Anon working so well together in this place. I'm truly touched by that. It's not that way everywhere. And this is pretty great stuff you all are doing here. But anyway, he was an Al-Anon member. He was working on my aftercare plan, and I went in there to assist him. 
Okay, if you're new and you don't know why that's funny, this one's for you. Please listen up. And uh, I explained to him that I wasn't taking an abuse. I wasn't going to halfway house, and they had a 28-day program, and I wasn't standing a minute longer. And I lay, just to lay out the parameters, help the man do his work. I was just trying to be helpful. <laughs> what a great attitude. And uh, he said, you've left out something you aren't going to do. I said, what? He said, well, you aren't going to make it. <laughs> I took that personally. And... Uh, in some language I like to think I don't use anymore, I, uh, I said to him, why'd you say that? That's not a quote. And uh, he responded with a question that changed my life. He said, if you already know how to run a program to keep yourself sober, how is it you happen to be a patient here? And I responded by glibly saying, I had never been asked a question I couldn't answer. I, I was, like you, I had made up some answers, but I could always throw something at it. I can't touch this. I spent the balance of that day wrestling that question. About 9 o'clock that night, I'm walking back to my cabin, and the answer showed up the same place the prayer had. I'm literally walking thinking about this, and the answer goes and strikes me in the chest. I can't explain it any better than that, except that's what happened to me. And the answer was and is, I don't know how to run a program to keep myself sober. If I'm going to be one of the very few that make it, I'm going to have to do it all. This is not the cafeteria lunch for me where I can take I want and leave the rest. This is too important. I need to win this time. I need to win this time. I know too many guys serving long prison sentences who are serving them because they went out for one more beer. I need to win this time. Here's my recovery. Here's what hangs from it. Uh, my sanity, I didn't tell you. I've been to the insane asylum. Uh, I've been in a little rubber room. I'm not going to ask for hands on that, but I'm not the only one. Okay, I've been there. How many times do you think a drunken pilot could have been killed? My, my life, my freedom. I'm supposed to be serving life in prison. My relationship with Miss Linda, this spectacular woman that I'm married to, uh, and our kids, my job, my house, my cars, my peace of mind, everything in my life means anything to me is suspended from my recovery. If I lose it, all that hits the floor and shatters. And I'm not saying you're there. I'm saying I am tonight. I stand here before you in that shape. And what I have is I have placed a wager. And I have wagered that if I will continue to live what's in this book and hang out with you people and try to carry this message, that I'll get to continue to have all those things. Nineteen and a half years. So far, so good. That's where I am with it. Miss Linda, by the way, sends love. Uh, you ladies who met her in Cincinnati at that women's conference a few months ago, uh, she loves you dearly. She did not come up here. Our twin grandsons will have their third birthday later this month. And three years ago, the rules changed. If Miss Linda ain't talking, she ain't coming. <laughs> but she sends you love. And uh, she is a beauty. But anyway, uh, when I got that great truth, that, that I'm going to have to do it all. I surrendered to what I lovingly call Step 1, Section B. Oh, my life's unmanageable. I didn't get that. I got it now. My life's unmanageable. It means I have fired me as general manager of my own life based on my performance. <laughs> A good manager would have fired me decades ago, right? And I have invited God in to manage my life. I did it this morning. I do it each morning. Um, and I ask him, and I treat God like he's a gentleman. And I try to invite him, and I try to do the things that will make him welcome. That's, that's in part what I do here. And uh, so I don't get to manage it anymore. My life, I, I can't find the page. I have read this book more than once. Page 59 says, my life's unmanageable, or our lives are. I can't find the page after that that says, congratulations, having now achieved this lofty spiritual level. Your life is manageable. The tank's full. The keys are in it. Have a gr Somebody shout at the page number. I was afraid of that. Okay, so it seems to me that my life remains unmanageable by me. It's no longer insane. 
because we no longer have an insane guy running it. And I think it promises his page uh, sanity on page 57, maybe on 84 and 85, somewhere along in there. Promises me sanity, but manageability is not coming. I don't get to run it anymore. I asked God to run this thing for me this morning. I meant it. I, I surrendered for a long time, and, and I don't surrender anymore. When I woke up this morning, I did not surrender. You know, think about surrender. That's Think about war and noise and broken glass and screaming and bent metal and blood. That's my blood, my screaming, okay, all that. That's when surrender happens. I didn't surrender this morning. I volunteered. It's a different level. Same, same result. It's a different level based on my experience. I've got a friend that says, if you're new, don't worry about faith. What you need to have is hope because faith is hope with a track record. Stick around here and hope for a while. And when you get the track record, the faith will come behind it. So that was pretty powerful. So anyway, I, uh, at that point, I surrendered to the second half of the first step, and I surrendered to the staff at that hospital. Whatever they said, I just did. And I zipped through their 28-day program in six weeks flat. And uh, I've always been a very quick study. I, I moved back to Nashville where the only person I knew in the entire city that was in recovery owned one of the businesses I called on, and I didn't want him to know. You recognize that? That's newcomer thinking. That's a terminal case of newcomer thinking. It will kill you. And uh, I set out to follow the aftercare plan. It said uh, 90 meetings in 90 days. I went to 87. I, I, two of them I can't remember why I missed. I know they were good reasons. But the one I remember in particular, I was, I was literally heading for the door to go to the meeting one night. And my young son decided to learn to dance standing up in a rocking chair. We went to the emergency room instead of the meeting. And I think everybody here will say that was a good call. That was a good call. I missed. Right? And I didn't know you could go to two meetings in a day. I thought when you missed, you just missed. Because uh, I got newcomer thinking. All right? They said stay away from your old playmates and playgrounds. My favorite watering hole in Nashville is on 8th Avenue South. And I had a two-year chip in my pocket the next time my car was on 8th Avenue South. I did not turn on to that street for over two years. I didn't call those guys. I completed this psychobabble four-step guide they'd given me in the treatment center. I'll clean up my language so I can't tell you what I think about that thing today. I would like to recommend the actual four-step. By the way, it's in this book. It's life-changing. And it's my experience that it is not much about writing, although there's writing involved. It is the observations and prayers that I find to be life-changing. And that doesn't mean I noticed something while I was writing. It's very specific about how to, how to do this thing. It's a series of lists, observations, and prayers. And it's very specific... If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please find out. Please find out. Four steps, one of the easiest things we have. It's kind of long, but it's real easy. If you haven't done one, I'll tell you a couple of secrets about it. Number one is there's no surprises. You already know all this stuff. So it ain't going to sneak up on you. You don't have to worry about it. Number two, what they told me was all that trash in my past is not who I am. That's who I'm not. Because if that's who I am, I'm still out there doing it. It doesn't make me sick to think about it. Must be that's who I'm not. What they will teach me here is how to stop doing who I'm not. How to make amends and repair the damage for doing who I'm not. How to receive the forgiveness for doing who I'm not. And who I am, really am will just kind of emerge from the ashes like the phoenix. That's been my experience. That, and that's what step four is about. It's about laying down that trash. And writing won't lay it down, by the way. So if, if all you've done in your fourth step is write, let's talk later, please. Because there's some of the most powerful stuff in this book is in the four-step where it does not call for writing. Powerful stuff. But anyway, um, I completed this psycho battle. Do you still hate your mother? Do you look in the toilet before you flush? Fill in the blanks. True, false, multiple choice. Four-step thingy. And I called down to the treatment center to Bernie, who had not been my counselor, but he'd agreed to hear my, four, my fifth step. The reason I asked him, because you'd look at him until he was stoned out of his mind, 
And, uh, well, you know what it looks like when somebody's stoned. He gets this relaxed face, this dumb grin when he moves. He moves real slow. I thought, I'm going to take my fist up with this junkie. A week later, will he know what I said? <laughs> he won't know if we did it. So I thought he would be a great choice. I called him. He said, sure. I drove down from Nashville to Atlanta. I took my fist up with Bernie, which is where I began to get relief. And if you're new and you're looking at the steps and they look to you like they're designed to punish you, welcome to AA. That's how they look to us. That was just one of those things I was wrong about. If I'd been working with a sponsor and actually doing the steps out of the book, I'd have been getting relief long before that. But anyway, I dumped the whole bucket for Bernie. And I headed back to Nashville. And, and by the way, just as an aside, Bernie was not stoned. Bernie was sober over 20 years. That was serenity. I didn't know what it looked like. I was a newcomer thinking. and <laughs> Terminal case, newcomer thinking. The only thing I haven't done at four and a half months sober that they said to do is get a sponsor. See if you can fill this one in. This is two word fill in the blank. Insanity. I'm so crazy I'm looking for a sponsor I can relate to. Oh, my God. Isn't that insane? I mean, think about that for just a minute. I can't figure out you can go to two meetings in a day. Who can I relate to, huh? I can relate to the squirrel on the next branch that doesn't know his fanny from a hot rock. Who I can relate to somebody else that's going to die of this thing. Thank God I didn't find a sponsor I could relate to. We would have both died. I stumbled into a sponsor I would obey. It was a concept I was not terribly familiar with. And... Uh, I asked this guy to sponsor me, and he said, sure, here's your first assignment. I said, assignment? I thought a sponsor was kind of like a big brother who's going to maybe loan you some money and fix your wife or something. It's one of those things I was wrong about. And uh, asked me later, I'll be glad to tell you, but I did the assignment. I said, Jerry, I did what you said. He said, good, I'll sponsor you my way. So what does that mean? He said, you are too sick to stay sober on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You will need the program also. And I did not know what he was talking about. Jerry outlived what the doctor said by over a decade. That's common here. And he said to the end, he thought that the best kept secret in our fellowship was the definition of our program. How do we keep it secret? Well, we read it at every meeting. So that's how we keep it secret. It's on page 59 in the text where it says very clearly, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a No steps, no program. Steps aren't part of the program. Steps are the program. Just that simple. The forward to the third edition says the numbered steps I see in the wall are a summary of this, that, that it's the balance. It's the whole book. That's the program. And uh, I had looked ahead at nine. I wasn't even sure you were serious about that, but it did not look like a good idea to me. And uh, I was honest with my sponsor. If you knew, I recommend that very highly. I said, Jerry, I don't want to do the steps. He said, that's okay. I said, good. He said, as long as you do them. <laughs> Jerry, I don't think we're communicating. Yeah, we are. That's the definition of willingness. Willingness is when you do what your sponsor says, whether you feel like it or not. Oh, I don't want to do the steps. It doesn't matter. Just do them. I asked him why, and he said, he changed my life with this. He said, think of yourself as a garbage can. I think it's the only easy assignment he ever gave me. He said, what we're going to do with these steps is dump you out. We're going to scrub the can and stand it back upright. We're going to fish through your life, and most of it's trash. We're throwing it out. Some of it's good, and we'll keep it. He gave two examples. He said, do you love your children? I said, you bet I do. He said, great, we'll keep that. And then he got smart. He said, when you go to work, you do a good job? I said, yeah. He said, we'll keep some of that. <laughs> when we get finished with these steps, you're going to be a big, clean, empty can with just a little bit of good stuff in the bottom. Because if we just try to fill with the good stuff, the poison's still in you. It's going to get sick. It's going to detonate. But our program's kind of like going to the dentist. We've got to drill before we can fill. And that's what steps four through nine are about. They're about drilling. But the good news is we got Novocaine. We call it sponsorship. We call it fellowship. We call it home group. We call it love. It's not as hard as it looks. 
We've done it. It's not that hard. And he said, the reason you have to do that is because alcohol is not your problem. What? Alcohol is not your problem. It's your answer. It's what makes you tall enough and smart enough and good looking enough and makes you feel like a member of the human race. When they said to me, lay down booze, they didn't say, lay down your problem. They said, let's lay down the only thing that's ever worked for you. This is the only thing that ever made your life work. This is the only thing that ever made your skin fit. This is the only thing that made you just another guy among other guys. Let's put that down. And what that leaves me is without an answer. And I'm the kind of guy that needs an answer. I wouldn't be an alcoholic. And uh, I'd like to point at what I consider to be, for me, the most powerful promise in the book is the first line of step 12. It says, having had a spiritual awakening is the result. The means one. That's what it says. The result. This is my experience. Spiritually awakened people don't drink. They're not thirsty. If you're new and you're still thirsty, we know how you can get unthirsty. I've been unthirsty since December of 1984. That's the last urge I had. Shortly after he started sponsoring me and got me into actually doing the steps out of the book. What a concept. Uh, in my period of recovery, I have not yet seen anybody in and out of the program. I haven't seen a single one. I bet there's not any here tonight. I've seen them in and out of the fellowship. Seen hundreds of thousands in and out of the fellowship. I have personally not seen anybody actually do take work, the 12 steps, out of the book. That would be different from learn, understand, or believe, or interpret, right? But actually do the work out of the book while being sponsored by someone who's already done the work out of the book and stay active carrying our message to drink again. Anybody here seen that? No hands. Y'all been raising your hands all night. Nobody's going up on that one. Rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path. Four to the third edition says our path is the 12 steps. Nobody here has seen it fail. How about that? That's pretty rare. That's pretty rare. So anyway, um, I just... He said the reason that you got to be the big, clean, empty can with a little good stuff in the bottom, he says you're going to need that empty, clean space one of these days to store pain in. He gave an example. He said your father's going to die. And on that day, if you don't have that big, empty, clean can with a little good stuff in the bottom, if you don't have that empty space to store that pain in, you, uh, you'll escape. Now, all the escapes you know are killing you and devastating everybody around you. When your heart takes one of those, you better have that empty can. Uh, this next story has a happy ending. Uh, get a hold of that, okay? This has a happy ending. Uh, July the 4th of, uh, I think it was 1993, my precious daughter fired a pistol into her mouth. And I found her about six hours later. And we rushed to Vanderbilt Hospital. And they told us for the first four days that they couldn't save this little girl. Within 30 minutes, there was about 20 of you having a prayer meeting out in the lobby. By dark, it looked just like this. We don't know how long that went on. Um, four days is a long time to sit at your baby's bed and she's a nightmare to look at and got tubes all stuck in her and they're telling us they can't save her life and she can't talk but she can squeeze your hand once for yes and twice for no and she don't want to die anymore and four days is a long time I think if I had not allowed that man to coach me through those 12 steps I would have committed murder that night uh, cold-blooded murder and uh, this story wouldn't have the happy ending that it does now let me tell you what you did you uh, you showed up. I didn't leave that hospital for 60 days. There was not a time in the next 60 days when there wasn't a member of my home group at least as close to me as I am to Chris right here. 60 days, 24 hours a day, you were there. They tell me you can pretend to care. You cannot pretend to show up. I'm so proud to be a member of a fellowship of people who show up. And that's what you did. I learned from the Alamans we don't trust the uh, words. We trust the actions. I'm a word merchant myself. You get to show me. And you showed me. 
I saw what you did. And if you're new, by the way, it wasn't to keep me from drinking. It was so that if I needed to cry at 3 o'clock in the morning, one of my people would be there to hold me. That's who you are. I had learned to cry when I was sober a year. I'm watching this guy in my home group. He's crying at every meeting. Very masculine guy. I went to him and I said, Tony, talk to me about the tears. And he said, man, somebody says something beautiful and it, it just it caresses my heart and I weep and it feels so good. And I said, Tony, I can't cry. He said, I'll teach you. And he did. And I wouldn't take anything for it because I had to become real. I don't think the act is going to get sober. And I had to become real. And what I am is a real masculine guy who weeps. And I'm very proud of that. I worked hard for my tears. There may be people here now that disrespect me because I'm a man that cries. I'm okay with you. God bless you. I hope you like me. But I'm okay if you don't. And I didn't have that when I got here. Jerry Carpenter is one of Nashville's deans when I got sober. used to say, I'd rather be despised for who I actually am than loved for who I'm not. And I couldn't say that when I got here. Because I'm doing this act knowing I'm no good. If you don't buy the act, there's nothing. don't have that anymore. By the way, if you'd like to learn to cry, if you'll see me later, I typed it up. <laughs> and I'd love to teach you to cry. In a room this size, there's probably about 30 of you. Pretty good guess. And I look forward to talking to you after the meeting. Because it's been a joy to me. I always feel so good after I've had a good cry. But um, anyway, my daughter lived, and she's doing just fantastic. She sends you love. I was talking to her on the cell phone on the way up here. She's married to a great guy, and they're doing super. And she sends you love. And uh, I sponsor a man whose son did not live. Emotionally, he was gone a good bit longer than I was. He didn't drink again. I gave him an 18-year chip in January. But emotionally, he was gone. You get up close to his face and scream, and he just couldn't hear you. He had that thousand-yard stare. And he's back now. He's doing fantastic. And he said it better than I could. And what he said was, one of these days you're going to have to go to the mountain all by yourself. And if you haven't done the work out of this book and you don't know how to reach up and take the master's hand, you're not going to be able to go. And I believe that. You know, we read a lot of promises out of this book. Here's one. Page 14. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive. That's a death threat. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. We promise you trials and low spots. They're coming. It's part of life. And what I had to learn was to be the kind of guy who doesn't get thirsty during trials and low spots. I had to learn to live in this day one day at a time. I started going to this old Woodbine clubhouse. They had slogans on the wall. Now, one of them said one day at a time. I said, I know what that means. It means don't drink today. And it sure means that. But eventually that's not enough. This is my experience. With the first ten steps, I've cleaned up my path. There's nothing gaining on me. Steps 11 and 12 are about learning to embrace the wondrous truth that a loving God holds my future. I've got a friend that says he spends too much time in his head trying to clear away the wreckage of his future. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so past is clean, loving God holds the future. Those two facts free me to live one day at a time in this day. If I don't have both those in place, I can't be here. Uh, one of the slogans said, um, let go and let God. I wonder how they do that. One of them said, um, first things first. I understood that. I was a newcomer, unsponsored. Of course, I wasn't doing it. And, uh, but had one, the only one I was doing that made me crazy to even look at it. You know which one that was, don't you? Saying, think, 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 think. Oh, yeah, I got that covered. And uh, got a friend who refers to his head as his home entertainment center. <laughs> they got everything it needs but off switch. And, uh, man, I'm knocking out that think, 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 thing. Oh, man. And I can't find that in my literature. So I'll take it upon myself. Use this if you can. Think, think, think. I figured out what that means. Three thinks is the limit. Whatever it is, I can think about it once as good, twice as good. I can think about it the third time. If I were going to outthink it, I would have outthunk it in three thinks. <laughs> if I go to the fourth think, i got a problem with step one, section B. I'm trying to manage it. 
As a matter of fact, everything in my life that I'm upset about is a 1B problem. Because if I wasn't trying to manage it, I wouldn't be upset about it. From international politics to the way you drive your car, to the fact that this spectacular woman that I'm married to puts the toilet paper on the road backwards. Should yeah. <laughs> feel over the top, as you well know. All right? Should feel, I fixed the one in the men's room. It should, should feel. Should feed over the top. I can't do that without thinking of that treatment center four-step guide. Should feed over the top. Um, but uh, she puts it on the other way. She says, because we got a cat. But I'm going to tell you something. I've been watching that cat for nine years. He don't use it. <laughs> I moved out of the home my first wife and I were living in when I was silver six years. Uh, I did a lot to make her sick. I stand guilty as charged, okay? So this is not her inventory I'm taking, believe me. But um, I was changing, in my opinion, she wasn't. And she's standing there tearing into me one more time. And she's 5'5 five, five and 105, and I'm 6 feet and 200. And I realized, in this moment of clarity, says, you're just before giving her a straight right to the face. And when she goes down, you're going with her. She's on the way to the hospital. You're on the way to the jail. It's a bad plan. And uh, I literally did about face and walked out. And two days later, I moved. And I didn't know what to do. I'm not religious. I do not believe in divorce. And yet I knew if I lived with her, it was a question of time before I was going to hit her. And I was given a gift, and I passed it on just in case somebody can use it. And the gift was three prayers. And the first one was, and I prayed these every morning, God, if it's your will for us to be together, put us together. And the second one, God, if it's your will for us to be apart, put us apart. Those are the easy ones. Here's the hard one. God, if it's your will for me not to know today, leave me not knowing. That's the one. For me, that step one section be in prayer form. I'm asking him to send it right on time. If it's his will for me not to know today, to leave me not knowing. So I always thought it was not knowing that made me crazy. <laughs> it was needing to know that was making me crazy. And I have learned to lay down the need to know. And that has brought me much peace. Um, if someone disagrees, by the way, with something I have to say tonight, I can't wait to hear from you. Not talk to you, but hear from you. I learned that way. So I'm, I'm searching for you. I really am. But uh, I walked out of a meeting one time, and a fellow who sponsor I sponsor stopped me, and he said, uh, disagree with something you said in the meeting today. I said, what was that? I had said that my amends to my children would never be complete, and he said, I don't think that's right. He said, did you go to your children and tell them what you did wrong? Did you ask how you could repair that damage and do it to the best of your ability? Did you ask for their forgiveness, and did they give it? I said, yes to all that. He said, you're trying to be the best dad you can be today is not ninth-step work. It's twelfth. That's the principles in all your affairs. And it, because... People living principal lives try to be good parents. If you think that's ninth-step work, you have not accepted their forgiveness or God's or your own, and you have work to do. If you're making living amends, it's okay with me. But I came down off the cross that day myself. My text doesn't say anything about living amends or continuing amends. It says there's a long period of reconstruction, but I don't think that's amends. i got to reconstruct. I see an awful lot of teenage and elder children manipulating us into doing things we shouldn't be doing that are unhealthy for everybody over the you weren't a good parent in the past thing. I'm trying to be a good dad today. It's not nine step work. It's 12. That was a great, great thing for me. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about nine too. And uh, this is a hot, this is a political hot potato. So please listen to me very closely when I start this. If you've done what I'm about to talk about and you're okay with it, I am okay with it. All right. I did not come here to judge you. I'm sh- I'm sharing this only because I needed to get free and I did. As a young man, I paid for an abortion, and I used to have to drink over that to make the what if thoughts go away from that. 
And that's what I was thinking about that night in the treatment center when I screamed for forgiveness and got it and I had the white light experience. When I got to step nine, it looked to me like I owed amends to an unborn child. I didn't think they could be done. And I have been blessed since my early recovery to be in the hands of people who are into the big book. This is page 83. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. And I sat down with a spiritual advisor and was instructed on how to write that letter. And as the fourth step is not about writing, it is the observations and prayers that were life-changing, this letter is not about writing. It is about tears. Now, that's my experience with it. And um, I've had the privilege of working with a pretty good number of people who needed to make amends to an unborn child or a grandparent or somebody that's already gone. If you're one of those, I would dearly love to give you this piece of paper where I've written down what my experience is. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm telling you what worked for me and a number of other people. And I got free. And today I can talk about that and nothing happens in here. Nothing happens in here. You got something happening in there on something? Let's talk. I'd really love, really, really love to talk to you about it. Uh, I'll tell you a couple other experiences I had. Um, Christmas Day a few years ago, we ran out of milk and I raced, you know, at halftime, I raced down to the convenience store and I grab a gallon of milk and I run up to the counter and I received a gift. Some, you don't know when they're coming. That's one of the great things that makes recovery and adventures. You don't know when the gifts are coming. And the gift I received is, is my heart saw this human being standing behind the counter probably making minimum wage on Christmas Day. And this part of me said to him, thank you for coming to work on Christmas Day. I bet there's some place you'd rather be. But you see, my family ran out of milk. And if you don't come to work today, we can't get it. I appreciate you being here. And he and I both cried. What a gift that was for me. And I, I, I learned the lesson there. I learned the lesson of saying thank you. I'm under assignment. I have a sponsor and I am sponsored. Those are separate concepts, you know, like going to work and working. Not necessarily the same thing. Got it? You get that? Okay. Now, one of my standing assignments is to spread the joy. That's my assignment. Ice Cream Steve gave me that assignment. He's not withdrawn it. And part of how I spread the joy is I say thank you. I say thank you. Get the bag of burgers. Thank you. Hey, in the kitchen, thanks for making my lunch. I appreciate it. Buy something on a weekend. Thank you for working on the weekend. Bet there's someplace you'd rather be. I appreciate you being here working on the weekend. Try that once and see what happens to you. Because I receive the gift every time I do that. And I'll tell you another story. I've got some friends that are actually capable of giving and not telling anybody about it. I'm impressed by that. I don't know if you are, but I really am because I'm rather into the applause myself. I'm, and I want to look humble while you're doing it, but it really needs to be long and loud. And... Uh, <laughs> I got an opportunity to do something nice for somebody and not get caught a number of years ago. I did it. And I didn't tell anybody. I never told anybody for about six months. And uh, (laughs) what happened was when I did that thing, it was like there was a piece of sunshine about the size of a golf ball that lodged itself in my chest. And I could think about what I'd done any time of the day or night. And this thing would glow and send light through my whole body. And I'm not trying trying to sound like a poet. I see some people nodding know exactly what I'm talking about. And um, But the day that I told, that thing got out. It's not there now. And I can tell you what it was. I took a small boy fishing. I had met him. I was taking a long lunch hour. I was fishing in a park. His family's having a picnic. The kid's like seven years old. And he is stuck to my leg with his fishing thing. And he really wanted to fish. Nobody in his family fishes. We did a couple of short trips. And his parents finally said yes. And I took him down the Buffalo River in a canoe. It's like a 10-hour trip. Um, And he was into it. He caught a four-pound smallmouth. He got my fish. That's what I'm telling you. And uh, about a mile from the takeout, there's nowhere to get out of this river. And suddenly the sky blackens. And I know we are fixing to really catch a storm. 
we come down a pretty fast place, and uh, there was an eddy, and we did what canoeists call eddy out, which is kind of like parallel park over to the side, kind of up under some branches. And I am just before giving God a little piece of my mind. Have you not noticed St. Scott down here with the little boy who caught my fish, and I'm being really good, and you got to just before doing that. And just as I get this eddied out, this beautiful little boy looks over his shoulder at me, and he says, is it okay to fish here? <laughs> I forget that I prayed that third step prayer in a minute. I forget that when the sky darkens and it ain't going the way I think it should, that that's the question I'm supposed to be taking to my Father. Not why are you doing this to me, but is it okay to fish here? Is there someone I'm supposed to help here? Is there something I'm supposed to give? Please help me to be open to you again, because I know that's where I'm supposed to be. That was a beautiful lesson for me. I don't have it in place. I know people that are chock full of those little pieces of sunshine, and they can't hide it because it shines out of their eyes. There's some of them here. I know that because I've been seeing them. Sun- I've been seeing them shine, and I think it's so beautiful. I, when I was new, I was so insane. I was thinking, saying all the crazy things. I was saying things like, "I'm having a good day," or "I'm having a bad day." Isn't that insane? I mean, if you'd asked me my first day, sober, what kind of day you having? Hmm. Would have taken me a long time to tell you. Yeah, and today I can't say that was a bad day. When I'm saying I'm having a good day, what I'm really saying is Scott's will is being done today. <laughs> and when I say I'm having a bad day, what I'm really saying is Scott's will is not being done today. That's really what it is. And either my will is one of the biggest problems I got, or there are quite a few mistakes in this book. Uh, a lot of them on page 62. Anyway, um, so I've tried to get away from that. Cause I got here suffering from what I call the John Wayne Syndrome. At about age 11, I got this mental image of what a man was, and I pretended to be that for the next 30 years. That's exactly what was going on. And here's some of it. Uh, big boys don't cry. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Never let them see your weakness. Never apologize. It's a sign of weakness. Don't ask any stupid questions. Never be found out. Get what you want. It'll make you happy. Never surrender. Never give up, no matter what. Sound familiar? That's who I was pretending to be. Turns out I was none of that. And it's my experience that real men are none of that. The exact opposite. And I had to lay down this act I was doing and try to become real, who I really was. And I was given the white light experience, I'll give you that, but here's one of my beliefs. God Almighty was not having a bad day in the middle of a long losing streak when he came up with me or any of you. did not happen that way. And whoever I really am standing behind the last mask is worthy of love and respect and a grand life, and will have it. It's never been God's unwillingness to give. It's been my inability to receive. I got here locked up like this, and what you've taught me to do is to open to receive the gifts that have always been here. And that's at least in part what these 12 steps are about. I walked into the old Woodbine Club one day, and I was I was having a discussion with another member. Now, not being as spiritually evolved as I am, you might have thought it was an argument, but it was actually a discussion about an exceptionally important topic, which I can't quite remember what it was right now. But uh, we're having this little discussion, and old Joe B. walked in, and Joe had been sober since three weeks before the earth began to cool, and was highly intelligent also, which obviously puts him on my side of this burning issue, which I still can't remember what it was. And uh, I posed the question to Joe as he poured his coffee, and I said, Joe, what do you think? And Joe said, I am not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, and I wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. My primary purpose is to stay sober, help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. He went in and sat down. By which time my opponent and I were laughing pretty hard. And uh, I cooked that for a while, and uh, I eventually had a revelation. And this is just my definition of a revelation. Revelation is when I figure out for myself something y'all been trying to tell me for six months or longer. <laughs> right? All you sponsors know that. You know, when he runs up to you, he says, No, we're not here. Stop being Yeah. 
And I, and I went to Joe and I said, hey, you meant that. He said, oh, yeah. Joe B. was living the AA preamble. He let nothing get between him and his, his primary purpose. One of the happiest men I've ever known in my life. I got a sign on my desk that says, remember, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I have to be reminded of that because I can forget it. One of the things we started doing uh, in my family recovery is we stopped giving our phone numbers to newcomers because it wasn't working. They don't call. What we do is we exchange phone numbers with new guys. And uh, I task the men that I sponsor with not giving their phone number but exchanging. And when you get his phone number, you will call him twice in the next three days. We're not going to chase him, but he can't call me. It's nothing for me to pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, I met you at the back room group Sunday morning. Uh, I talk to five guys or more every day that are in recovery. You're on today's list. How's it going? I'm going to the fellowship group tonight on, on Sneed Road. Uh, meet you there. We'll have a cup of coffee. Nothing for me to call him. He can't call me. I, I wonder what would happen, this thing about the hand of AA always being there. What would happen if we could stick it out just a little bit further? We don't believe in chasing them. But let's make them just a little bit more welcome. I'll tell you, it's been working great for us. Uh, I carry a picture of myself taken when I was about four years old, this beautiful little boy. I've got it with me, by the way. If you ask me, I'll sure be glad to show it to you. But uh, I was living in a ratty little apartment when uh, when I was in the process of getting divorced and didn't know that was going on. And I was, I was looking at that picture one day, and I thought, I wonder. And I had it blown up, two feet wide, three feet high. It's on the wall at the foot of the bed. And I'm laying there looking at this thing one night trying to figure out why I did that. And uh, I got this wonderful thought. And the thought was, who would he have become? As a small boy, I was abused. It went on for a long time. And I want you to know that nothing happened in here when I just told you that. Because I've been through the forgiveness process, which is located in the fourth step in the big book. If you, if you don't know about that, please let's talk later. Uh, and it's not about writing. I'm really on a soapbox on that tonight. But anyway. Um, and, but anyway, as a small boy, I was abused. And I also did some pretty horrible stuff myself. And this thought was, looking there, that beautiful little four-year-old child of God, who would he have become if all that hadn't happened? And I got the answer. And the answer it is my assignment to become the man that he would have become. I serve a powerful God. Gave me a powerful program. More powerful than anything I did. More powerful than anything that was done to me. The question is, do I accept the assignment? That's the only question. I don't have the power to make a mistake so grievous that God can't turn it into something magnificent. I didn't say fix. Turn it into something magnificent. Probably there are people in this room who are going to get free tonight because of the story I told about the abortion. I'm not trying to brag. I'm talking about what happens when I put my ugly past in God's hands. And what happens is that lives are changed and, and lives are saved. And, uh, wow. Have I been inhaling? I mean, it just... <laughs> um, my last flight in a high-performance aircraft, I leveled at 40,000 feet and uh, three and a half minutes from brake release. And they gave me this big area to work in, and I'm going to give you a lot of details on it, but I just was kind of idly curious as to how high this aircraft would go. And um, 45,000 is a service ceiling. That means you're not supposed to be above it for some very, very, very good reasons. Ask me later. I'll be glad to tell you. And uh, I pulled the power back out after burner because the fuel gauges kind of move fast when you're in burner. And uh, I'm flying at nine-tenths of the speed of sound in a 30-mile circle with just, you know, the nose up just a little bit. And I'm climbing in this circle. And uh, I thought I was going to get to 10 miles at 52,300 feet. You know, 500 more, I'd have been at 10 miles. I'm doing an instrument climb. I have not looked out. I'm 80 miles west of Jacksonville, Florida, out over the Okefenokee Swamp. On a clear morning about 930, 
and uh, she wasn't going up anymore. We were done. And this plane that rolls at 720 degrees a second, I could wash the cockpit out with a stick and nothing happened. It, the air was so thin up there. And I just come around to a northerly heading and I looked for the first time. 9.30 in the morning on a clear morning. The sun's coming up over my right shoulder. The sky above me is black at 52,300 feet. I looked out to the west and saw the curvature of the earth. I mean, really saw it. This, this thing is this beautiful blue ball that's just kind of floating in space, held there by God's love, I guess. And uh, I had this feeling of, of awe. I can't describe the feeling, but it's like something warm had been poured on me when I saw that. And it ran like, like down, it waxed down a candle. And it filled me. And uh, in the poem High Flight, the author says, I reached out my hand and touched the face of God. I know what he's talking about. I did that. And uh, sat there about 30 seconds. It's very, very dangerous to have done that. And I eased the throttles back and brought it down and landed. I didn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell them. If they believe me, I'm going to get court-martialed. And uh didn't tell a soul. And I didn't tell it the whole time I was in the Air Force. I'd kind of forgotten about it. And five years sober, a guy named Burke Harlan, who was one of my mentors, he helped me learn to cry. Burke has been gone to the big meeting a long time. But he invited Don't Don't go to bed tonight without getting one of Burke Harlan's tapes. He's a fabulous speaker. He cries through his whole talk. Never seen a heart this open. And uh, I spoke at his 12th AA birthday, and I got to tell him that story. And I can remember saying out loud, I wonder why I'm telling this. I got to the end and found out. It was my first spiritual experience. And I have wanted to see that again for over 30 years. On June the 28th of last year, I turned 60 years old and 19 years sober on the same day. And Miss Linda had a 1960 party for me. And uh, we had a ball. And on June the 29th, we chartered a Learjet. Me and Miss Linda and two of the kids... A Lear 31 will go to 51,000 feet. That's close enough. Yeah, that's close enough. It's not as expensive as you might think. If that, if that calls to you, let's talk later. I'll tell you how to do this thing. Alcoholism didn't take away my dreams. It took away any chance they had of coming true. Alcoholics Anonymous has given them all back. Today I've learned to dream big. I serve a big God. I think that's part of my responsibility. I don't think I can outdream God. I get in trouble if I expect... But, uh, boy, it sure doesn't, it doesn't hurt anything for me to, uh, to dream big. Dream with an open heart. What a gift. Um, I stand before you, by the way, in my stocking feet, and I want to tell you why. It's because this many people invite God into the room, I could be standing on holy ground. And I've tried to carry that in my heart up here. And it means that much to me. I, I love you. I owe a debt I can't repay, and I'm serious as I can be about that. A debt I can't repay. Uh, I was serious, by the way, if you'd like to learn to cry, if you, if you need to make an amend to somebody that's gone, I really would love to talk to you afterward. And uh, I would quote my wife who says, God's will is a good deal. <laughs> who would have thought it, you know? Who would have thought it? I was at a meeting in Knoxville a number of years ago, and uh, there was a little discussion meeting going around the room. They don't just want your name and disease. You've got to talk. in a little room. And um, they come to this guy, and uh, he's... he's scowled and all. I thought, oh, an attitude case. I can't wait. He said, I've just come back from an ancient ritual from a medieval ceremony where 10,000 people sat in an on-air conditioned auditorium wearing long robes. I figured it out. That's graduation, University of Tennessee. I got it. That's commencement. I got it all by myself. And uh, he said, Alex Haley, the gentleman that wrote Roots, was the featured speaker. Mr. Haley had only said a couple of words. And he wasn't talking about AA, but it reminded this guy so much of his AA program that he forgot about the air conditioner and just started enjoying the fact that he was sober. And what Alex Haley said that for me describes us better than anything else I've ever heard was, if you ever see a turtle sitting up on the top of a fence post, 
you'll know he's had some help. God bless you and thank you for the help.